You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. We have been on hiatus, but we are back. It is 2017. America is great, or at the very least, Blogging Heads is great. I'm Heather Holbert. I run the New Models of Policy Project, Policy Change Project at New America. And I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I also write spoiler alerts for the Washington Post. And Dan, I feel like we should note at the beginning of this that um, of good things that have happened in 2017, um, we are getting to have a lot of colleagues in the National Security Foreign Policy uh, podcast space. And so we make a hearty welcome to all of our colleagues in that space. And we just will we just will note that you and I have been doing this podcast since before there were podcasts. (laughs) When they do, when the History Channel does the exhaustive six hour documentary on the history of foreign policy of podcasts, we will be in the first hour. It will feature us in funny hats. Exactly. (laughs) So in, in like doggero type, you know, like, you know, like the, the, where we have the poses like, like that, you know. In case you are tuning into this podcast because you think there is nothing good happening in American foreign and national security policy, Dresner and I are here to tell you that you're wrong. Yes. Um, well, now that we're done with the good news. Right. <laughs> That's true. If nothing else, the pl- proliferation of foreign policy podcasts is a good thing. But that said... We are speaking uh, literally a week, almost to the exact minute, a week after Donald Trump was inaugurated uh, as the 45th president of the United States. And, you know, frankly, it's been a really boring first week. Not a lot has happened um, that, uh, well, okay, maybe a few things have happened. Yeah, we, we had a little trouble before we came on the air, sort of parsing out what we were going to talk about. Um, you know, Zerlina Maxwell tweeted this morning that this, she thought, had been the worst week in American history, which made me go back and look at 1861. And Definitely not the when, worst week in America. When but when you're comparing your week to 1861, that's... Um, that that's I, I think we can say from a prof- political scientist professional perspective, that's not a good sign. Right. Or, you know, speaking about international relations, people have been talking about whether this is the worst year or 2016 was the worst year since, let's say, 1968. And I think 1968 was actually worse. But that said, that you're even having the conversation is somewhat problematic. Well, I am just going to pause and say that I'm very partial to 1968. As am I. Um, I, thought, I thought we might be equally partial to 1968. Exactly, yes. So. But that said, I, I do think, in fairness, that a number of uh, sort of journalists and others who, while not necessarily supportive of Trump, um, are not full-blown, you know, never-Trumpers, I think have raised at least a somewhat valid point in suggesting that maybe there have been areas where um, either the mainstream media or the foreign policy community has overreacted to certain stories that have come out. Um, and that, in fact, a lot of what has happened in this first week is a lot of what happens in any administration's first week. And that, to be fair, there are times where you need to parse out what is going on is unique to this administration in a really bad way. Or is it just stuff that happens and we're, we're overreacting? So, as a result, this entire podcast is dedicated to the theme of the first week of Trump, are we overreacting or underreacting? And I believe our plan is to go through a series of issues 
related to the foreign policy and national security windows and decide whether or not we think uh, people are overreacting or underreacting uh, to what Trump um, and his staff are doing. And I also want to just add to that that it is possible that something um, may have a large effect on a large number of people, and yet it would still be the case that you people are either over or underreacting because what, what you and I are doing here is bringing an institutional lens. Right. Did whatever, did whatever the development, you know, for example, did, um, did Donald Trump uh, putting out a statement on Holocaust Remembrance Day that makes no reference to Jews? Um, that um, seems odd and possibly um, emblematic of other things. Um, it is, I mean, on the one hand, it's not a big deal because it's a statement on a on an anniversary and that's not a big deal it has no policy implications for anything on the other hand it is a dramatic break with sort of classic political practice or there's the obverse which are policies that do have a significant impact um because trump has been inaugurated but in point of fact are not really a departure from previous republican administrations so global gag rule the Mexico City policy was what I was, yes, exactly. That would be a classic example. Yeah, so, you know, Trump is, is sworn in. He implements the Mexico City policy. I understand a great number of liberals are going to have, um, a great number of people are going to have issues with that. But let's be honest, that is, since I believe Reagan on, something that every Republican president imposes and something that every Democratic president removes. I, I will also note that um, unlike some of the other areas we're going to talk about, the global gag rule order was carefully written in a way that actually extends it to more policy, more areas of assistance than has been in the case, the case in the past, which is an interesting theme that we'll thread through this conversation is that some of these um, policy areas um, were prepared clearly by people who know the area well and who've been thinking for many years about how they want to change the policy. Um, others um appear to have been prepared by people who read fake news sites oh and are dear. not particularly well acquainted with the factual back the fact patterns associated with the issues in question so let's start off with that because i bet what you're talking about is the proposal to reduce u.s contributions uh to various international organizations well, and to the, some of the specifics within it being yes, that the U.S. should reduce contributions to organizations that recognize Palestine. Hint, we don't contribute anything to any organizations that currently recognize Palestine. And that the U.S. should withdraw from participating in um, several international treaties, chiefly the uh, Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which we don't belong to because Congress wouldn't ratify it. So, yeah, so Congress has been effectively protecting the American people from the depredations of eliminating discrimination against women for, for uh, several decades now. And, and the rights of the... Wait, no, are we, I can't remember. Oh, uh, no, that's another one on the list. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, um, so the, the, but the, the interesting point here is, is that that executive order, um, you know, which supposedly was not shown to our new ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, in advance, um, it clearly did not have the benefit of the expertise of anybody in the State Department who knows anything about what treaties we adhere to and which ones we didn't or what UN bodies we support and what ones we didn't. 
Okay, so this gives rise to another question, another, you know, overreact or underreact, um, uh, which is events that happened yesterday. Um, namely, there was a story by Josh Rogan, I believe, who originally broke this in the Washington Post, in which he announced that four um, State Department uh, senior management officials um, that generally are in charge of running the building, as it were. They don't have policy bailiwicks. They literally are in charge of stat, you know, the, the management positions. All, it turns out, the reporting originally suggested they had all resigned. It now appears that what happened was they submitted their resignations as per standard for January 20th. Um, apparently, originally they were accepted in the sense of you will resign effective immediately January 20th at noon. Uh, it has now been changed. Um, it, they then altered that, and it turns out they were all told you should step down, uh, which was announced uh, yesterday. Um, this led to a whole bunch, at least on social media, of sort of reactions to this, um, including, however, uh, I believe a statement from the American Foreign Service Association at the end of the day, suggesting that this really wasn't as big of a deal as some on social media were making it to be. So, overreact or underreact? You know, you put together the executive order and the departures and the, you know, the fact that Tillerson got voted out of committee on a party line vote, which is the first time that has ever happened to a secretary of state. Um, he's on track to get confirmed with less. So, I mean, secretaries of state get very, I believe only seven people voted against Kissinger. Is that right? Um, Kissinger was one. No, it's got to have been maybe 13. Um, but Kissinger was one of the more contentious state appointments in modern times, and he got more than 70 votes. Hillary Clinton sailed through as Secretary of State. That's an excellent point you make there. So um, the sort of overall, you know, the overall point that I think you should draw from this is that um, the people who do and follow most closely American diplomacy don't think they're getting minimally competent American diplomacy, not because of Tillerson personally, I hasten to add, yeah. but be because of the sort of net, um, the net of what you get here is, yes, this is a big deal. You know, any individual piece of it, not that big a deal. Right. But on net, this is a very, very large deal in terms of how do you, how do you get anything done for the U.S. and the world? The thing I'm actually genuinely flummoxed about, to be fair, I, I, I think, first of all, it should be stressed that what happened was entirely legal and sort of par for the court. The, the general rule, and Heather, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, obviously all senior, you know, sort of political appointees resign um, and effective January 20th. Usually there are a few people that are asked to stay on sort of as caretakers until undersecretaries and or deputy secretaries, people who know the building, are actually confirmed by the Senate. Um, it strikes me that what is unusual in this situation is that I don't think anyone has been asked to stay on. Um, well, more than that is that the four people who left yesterday were actually not political appointees. Um, they were career foreign service officers, right. some of them serving in positions, I mean, where you know, the Obama administration put them. Um, so, you know, I mean, an example is that there have been several administrations in recent memory that had career foreign service officers as the spokesman. Um, so Nick Burns, 
uh, Richard Boucher, if you go further back in the day. And, you know, obviously a new administration, a new secretary didn't want the spokesperson who was the spokesperson for his or her predecessor from the other party, but the person, you know, chose to get another assignment in the Foreign Service. And, you know, where these individuals yesterday, you know, the reporting was they had sort of been waiting to see, would they go on and take another post? And they all for either chose or were pushed um, to, to depart. So, so that's where, and they were also, they were in, and I think, you know, this is where I come back to my basic point about why this is a big deal. Their job is to, to make the trains run on time, um, right. those jobs. And so if, if they're concluding Either they're concluding we cannot make this place function given what we've, you know, given that someone is coming in and sign and, and proclamating executive orders about how the State Department functions, clearly based on no input from anyone who actually understands how the State Department functions. Mm -hmm. So either they're looking at that and concluding, whoa, we can't do our jobs, or um, you know, and I'll remind you that we still don't have a deputy secretary nominee, um, apparently because there isn't agreement between the Trump people and Tillerson on who would be acceptable. Um, so you, you basically rumors, have... I just, I, I just want to make sure the rumors are the, the same that you've heard. I've heard, the, the names that I've heard floated recently were Elliot Abrams and Paula Dobryansky. Yep. Okay, good. Same ones I've heard. Right. Um, but those have been floating around for a couple weeks and there's been yeah. no announcement. Um, I mean, and, and so I'm at the point that many of those rumors, I think, are um, sort of wishful thinking, frankly, from people that both you and I know. Right. Um, but so but what you have is the, the political transition people who are perfectly fine with not having anybody there who can actually, you know, carry out the basic functions of, of American diplomacy. And that that folks is not what Trump voters voted for. You know, nobody was interested in, oh, let's, like, not have a State Department. Well, yes and no. Now, here's, so, so he, let me, I don't want to push back exactly, but I want to suggest two things that are going on here. The first is, is that from a bureaucratic politics perspective, it is not terribly surprising to me that you're seeing the White House staff trying to get out in front with the series of executive orders, particularly with respect to foreign policy, because if, again, it's worth remembering, during all of the Senate confirmation hearings, you know, not just Secretary of Defense Mattis, um, but also, you know, Tillerson and others um, made statements that were actually pretty much at odds with what Trump's foreign policy uh, rhetoric had been during the campaign. And if you're someone like, I don't know, I'll just throw out a name, Steve Bannon, you know, who's in the White House, who legitimately believes in the sort of populist nationalism uh, that Trump has been talking about, it's not entirely surprising to me that they are pushing what they are pushing now because they recognize that once state and defense are actually staffed up yeah. and staffed up with people that presumably at least at a minimum are signed off on by Tillerson and Mattis, hey, they're going to get some bureaucratic blowback. They're going to get or they're going to get significant pushback. So I, I would say that's not a bug. That's a feature of how Bannon is, is going forward. And if Bannon legitimately believes that that's what got him, what got Trump the, the electoral victory, then I can see that. This leads to the second point I would make, which is sort of a, on a general sort of stepping back this question of the executive orders that have been promulgated on things like the wall, um, on immigration, on what have you, um, and ones that were have not have been mooted somewhat, like the one on vote fraud and the one on um, the one on potentially black sites. 
Um, it strikes me that this is one where I'm not sure if there's an overreaction or underreaction, because on the one hand, some of what's being proposed is clearly pretty appalling, uh, particularly the, the black sites, uh, the idea of, of, of bringing back waterboarding and, and torture, and, and something that Trump said he thought worked in his uh, truly appalling interview with ABC. But that said, there's, there's two counters to that, which is first, among other things, the black site memo didn't get signed which suggests there actually was pushback, which means that maybe the system might be working a little better than we thought. And second, a lot of these executive orders seem really badly um, worded or badly structured in such a way that, like the one on the wall, as I read it, the key sentence was, the federal government will, al you know, will allocate available resources towards this, which I don't think is all that much. So, you know, is this a case where people are reacting to the rhetoric in the executive orders without understanding what's actually being said? Well, I do think part of the strategy of the executive orders is that if you issue an executive order, then to some extent you can um, tell your base that you did the thing. Right, exactly. So I do think there's a lot of checking of boxes. But mm -hmm. I also think that there's been a certain amount of um, complacency Having observed that, for example, the wall executive order is not self-executing, that, you know, issuing that order is not going to result in the building of a wall. Right. Um, but I think it's important to go through the national security ones, you know, so um, the black sites and torture, which it, it's important to note those are two different um, points. One right. is reopening or re-permitting, and just to, to be clear to folks who haven't had the pleasure of following this. Black sites are detention centers that are off of U.S. soil um, and are not acknowledged. And so therefore, number one, there are certain rights that we, um, that it has been, it has been contested in courts that detainees have if being held on U.S. territory, even if being held by the military, and that they do not have um, if being held not on U.S. territory, so that's already concerning. And then point two is obviously, by definition, if they're a black site, we don't know where they are, uh, and they may very well be located in countries that don't don't have domestic protections and or don't enforce what domestic protections and what protections international law affords to anybody that you take prisoner anywhere under any circumstances. So, so that's sort of a whole category of, of thing. Um, and I do think, you know, that one, there are people, um, you know, in the defense community who, who really didn't like and who, who saw it as a significant problem, not having a place you could, you could, you could snatch people and then interrogate them. And, and interestingly, I mean, something that makes this complicated to think about from a liberal perspective is the argument was we were killing people because we didn't have any place to take them and interrogate them. So, so, so this is a challenging issue. I would argue it's not really a um, sort of throwing out an executive order that says, oh, hey, let's just start up some cool black, black site detention centers suggests to me that you, it, you haven't really had a thoughtful internal debate about what to do. But there are people who've been having this, this debate. Now, on the right. other hand, the, the torture piece of it was interesting because, of course, there is plenty of U.S. law against torture. So you cannot, you cannot reinstate torture with an executive order. Um, so, so, and somebody clearly knew that, so, which is where you get this, well, we're going to look at interrogation methods again. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so again, those orders, you do have some people who know something about defense working on them. 
Um, and that suggests to me that we need to take very seriously that there are people inside who have those views and who have some experience working in, in the institutions. Okay. And I would add, by the way, that it struck me that those were the, the what I did find interesting was those were the orders, the, the at least floated executive orders that I think got the biggest amount of congressional pushback, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans. Um, and those are the ones that generated the, the, a fair amount of press stories suggesting that neither Mattis nor Pompeo had signed off on it or had even been in the loop on any of these things, which again is consistent with some of this, what the story that I was talking about before, um, about, uh, about the White House pushing out things that cabinet officials don't necessarily know all that much about. Um, so what would you like? I, I've been I've been giving out examples of overreaction and underreaction. Do you have any that you would? Uh... Right. Well, the one that we haven't talked about yet, um, which I think has not had has been underreacted to from the national security community is the immigration and refugee executive order. Um, because that one, it's very clear that that is already having um, effect. Right. So um, State Department officers who are in charge of refugee processing were told to stop processing and to cancel their interviews with refugee applicants. Mm -hmm. So so that one, you know, is having a real life impact on real life human beings um, today as we speak. Number one. Um, number two, the immigration piece of it. Um, you saw an immediate reaction from right wing groups saying, oh, great. This means that law enforcement can pick up anybody and deport them. Um, and that, uh, while not in fact literally true, um, that has, to me, that's one where the rhetoric matters a lot. Because if that executive order has um, the intent and the effect of empowering um, a sort of vigilante sense in American culture, um, that's going to have a lot of very, very negative effects on people. And then just the, the last thing I want to say is the catastrophic signal it sends to people who are our partners and allies, both in terms of, you know, you're an Iraqi translator, you fought alongside us, yeah. um, you've been, you know, your family is very frightened because people would like to kill them because you worked for us and you applied for refugee status and now you are stuck. Or you are an American soldier of Iraqi descent. Um, read about a guy like this online yesterday. Interestingly, in a story tweeted out by the Defense Department, which you know <laughs> might indeed suggest that some people are very much not in line. So, so you're an Iraqi American soldier. You are in um, you are in northern Iraq fighting for your family members. Your family members can't come to the U.S. to visit you to say thank you. Um, this is, and you know, then we don't, I mean, you and I both have colleagues who are dual citizens of various kinds who sort of said, gee, now if I leave the U.S., I can't come back. So, so that executive order to me is the one that had the most immediate day-to-day -day relevance, but that also has long-term national security ramifications that I think, you know, our community, we get so excited um, talking about sort of making fun of the, uh, the treaties one, or sort of talking about the ramifications of the black sites one, but the the refugee and um, refugee and immigration one might be the one that actually has the most immediate impact. So let me now articulate, and this is 
probably, let me put this way, on the, on the one hand, I agree with you that I think there's been an underreaction to it. Let me now articulate to you my worst fears as a result of this executive order, which is, which is actually part of a larger piece of what I wonder if the Trump White House hope, hopes that will happen, which is to say that these are the kinds of orders that will generate, the, the, I mean, let's face it, they're a dream for organizations like ISIS, um, which want to recruit uh, anti-American radicals um, and lone wolf terrorists as much as possible. Pursuing these kinds of actions is very likely to inspire uh, or radicalize people that would otherwise not necessarily or only somewhat modestly inclined to uh, engage in acts of terrorism in the United States. As a result, you then create a vicious feedback loop, which is to say this will inspire further um, acts of violence within the United States, uh, further protest movements that could potentially also turn violent, which will then be used as a pretext by the Trump administration uh, to, as I believe he put it in a tweet with respect to Chicago, send the feds in, um, which is to say it essentially is a way in which Trump can promote his law and order campaign uh, in ways that will further curtail the civil liberties of uh, all American citizens. And, and there's a part of me that even saying this makes me wonder if I'm being paranoid in saying it, that this will not actually happen. And yet... There's also a part of me that cannot dismiss this out of hand and thinks this is actually the conscious strategy of this White House. Well, you know, it points to a larger commonality behind um, all of these these orders that we're that we're talking about, um, which is that you know they all sort of appear to be things that aren't closely connected to day to day American life, um, and yet it turns out that. Um, the things that, that wonks like you and I think of as the pillars of the liberal international order are actually very closely tied to the pillars of constitutional American order. Um, and, um, and now this is where I sort of get to feel all paranoid sounding, but um, there are, you know, there are ways that, that each of these orders is using, using um, the perceived threat from overseas and the perception that the international liberal order wasn't doing enough for Americans right. and using that anger and fear as weapons to turn back inward against against our, our order at home. And I'll, I'll give you one more specific example just because it's something that I think has not been sufficiently understood. Um, I was not clear whether it wound up in the final order, but there was conversation that one of the facets of the uh, refugee and immigration order was going to be um, naming the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror organization. And you know, for most Americans who quite understandably don't keep track of their um, Middle Eastern groups or you know, you know, who sort of just don't ever think about about that you're like well okay if they're you know if they're trying to kill us sure and like geez i have to trust that somebody knows who's trying to kill us and and it might not seem like that big a deal one way or the other but there are a non-trivial number of american muslims who are affiliated with the muslim brotherhood or who have been in some way connected to it or who have given to charitable organizations connected with it in a totally nonviolent, non-terrorist way. And um, what 
people are very fearful of is that naming the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization will not only be used, by the way, to help the Egyptian government um, conduct a very violent and totally non-rights-respecting crackdown on dissent in its own country, but that it will be then turned inward against mosques in this country, and that it will move towards something that Trump actually said in a campaign speech that seemed so, so outside the pale of American life that I think most people just didn't even hear it when he said it. Um, but the idea that you would put the American government in the position of deciding who's a good Muslim and could stay here and who's a bad Muslim and could not. And as I say, I mean, the Trump it, gave this... Actually, if memory serves, I think one person who was actually appalled by that suggestion was uh, Indiana Governor Mike Pence. I believe, in fact, he tweeted out something along the lines of saying, that's nonsense, we won't ever do that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, we'll have to go look that up. Um, I don't know if we did, we, people were teaching John Dingle how to do Throwback Thursday on Twitter, and he was sort of tweeting out old, um, yeah. old Trump tweets and saying, am I doing this right? So that's another, that's a John Dingle candidate. But, but I think, you know, one of the things, frankly, that these executive orders appear to be setting up is a circumstance where um, you are moving toward a situation where the U.S. government can decide who's a good Muslim and who's a bad Muslim. And that, um, you know, you can disagree with me on every aspect of foreign policy. You can hate the liberal international order. You know, you can be left or right. But there really, in my opinion, there are not two points of view on the question of whether the U.S. government gets to decide gets to judge who's a good or bad adherent of a religion, or indeed what a religion is. I mean, Congress shall make no law means yes. Congress shall make no law. Um, so, so I think um, the, the, the extent to which these security issues are, are being swung at the heart of American democracy is, is the big um, sort of underreact from this week. Let me put it this way. The way I, 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 in some ways, my biggest underreact actually jumps off of a point you made, which is to say that I think one of the one of the guiding assumptions for both Trump voters and I think the Trump White House is the belief that the liberal international order, as we understand it, um, is somehow made of literally wreaked American carnage. I mean, to, to quote from the, the inaugural address and that therefore the situation is so bad now that even if you disrupt that liberal international order, so what? What the hell have you got to lose? Things are not going to get worse, right? I mean, they can only get better. This is the, the, the logic that Trump and, and his supporters seem to articulate. Now, um, to inject some facts here, that's A, not true at all. Um, but I think it, it actually points to a bigger blind spot that, that Trump has demonstrated and his supporters have demonstrated throughout the, the campaign, and, and I suspect into his administration, which is uh, essentially they can't see, they literally are blind to the benefits that aspects of the liberal international order um, have brought to the United States in no small part because I think they take them for granted. And the example I would offer here, again, is NAFTA, um, or is, is NAFTA. So yesterday there was a big kerfuffle because um, uh, the Mexican president canceled his visit to the United States after uh, President Trump basically implied, well, don't come unless you're going to uh, offer to pay for the wall, which was an absurd bargaining position because that was not going to happen. Um, Sean Spicer, I believe, uh, floated a trial balloon of a 20% uh, 
attacks on Mexican imports, although even the way he phrased that uh, was relatively unclear, and then he walked it back. Um, this, I would argue, by the way, is an example of just someone who's in their first week in the job and is, you know, going to bollocks things up. I don't really have a great deal of love for Sean Spicer, but everyone who I've talked to talks about him says he's a professional, and I suspect this is something where, uh, you know, they'll, they'll shake out the rust after a week or two. What I am genuinely concerned about, however, is that this has prompted a great debate among economists over what the precise benefits of NAFTA have been to the U.S. economy. Um, and you can read Brad DeLong, who basically makes the case that NAFTA is not the boogeyman that, uh, that many critics have, have argued about it. And then on the other side, there is Danny Roderick, who doesn't disagree with Brad on, the, on the, the fact that NAFTA hasn't been a disaster, but basically argues that the distributional impact of NAFTA has been much greater than the sort of net welfare gain. Um, the problem I have with both of these debates is that they are strictly economic and they overlook in some ways, to my opinion, hands down, the biggest benefit of NAFTA is that Mexico under NAFTA orients itself as a North American country um, that aspires to things like democracy and the rule of law and cooperation with the United States on a whole array of issues, including, by the way, counter-narcotics and counter-terrorism. Um, I am old enough to remember what pre-NAFTA Mexico looked like and what pre-NAFTA Mexican-American relations looked like. And I think the answer can be summed up in the words, not good. Um, that there was not a lot of cooperation uh, south of the border. There was a country that was almost, you know, conditioned its entire identity um, as, op you know, opposition to the United States um, and resentment at U.S. intrusion into Mexican affairs. And the reason I bring this up is that essentially there's going to be an election in Mexico next year, um, and uh, the leading candidate um, is uh, Lopez Obrador, uh, who I believe goes by the acronym AMLO. Um, and he's someone who's run twice before. He is uh, the, from the, uh, the PRD party. Uh, it's a pretty far-left party. It's not quite Chavez-like, although Chavez supported him in one of the, the previous elections. My suggestion is, is that if this is one of these examples where Trump looks at um, relations, you know, at NAFTA and relations with Mexico and thinks, oh, my God, we run a $60 billion deficit with them. There are immigrants who occasionally cross the border. This is unacceptable. Um, if you have a Mexico that is under a severe recession and whose government does not really cooperate with the United States, I would suggest that things are going to be a lot worse than a $60 billion trade deficit, which is frankly not all that big of a deal. Um, and so that is my concern, that essentially the, what, what is being underreacted to is the fact that the current rules of the game benefit the United States in a much greater way than people realize, because yes, you can point to things where th things don't look terribly great, but I remember what they were like before the institutions were set up in the first place, and they were far worse. So we're trying to have two conversations at once here, I think, which is really challenging. And one is, I actually think the um, the Danny Roderick distributional argument is a good is a good lens on sort of yeah. the the political and security results of NAFTA as well. In that formalistic government to government cooperation in the security realm is 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 you know you're right, it's not comparable at all to what it was like before. It's it's light years better. Um, on the other hand, the things that NAFTA was supposed to deliver for Mexican citizens and, you know, in terms of actual sort of progress within Mexico on institution building um, have really not been realized. 
um, or, you know, have have not been realized to the extent that Mexican citizens hoped they would be realized, which, as we know from the U.S. context, is maybe much more important than the the sort of, um, what's the word I want, um, absolute, than an absolute scale. Yeah. So, so yeah, NAFTA pr- provided big benefits and big disappointments on the on the sort of security security side, political security side as as well, and that. Were we living in a different moment or when we are living in a different moment and we get to thinking about, you know, sort of what do we pull out of the wreckage of what's happening right now, um, not losing sight of that distributional argument and thinking about, you know, um, if it were a Clinton administration renegotiating NAFTA rather than a Trump administration, what would you do to try to, to change the distributional problems both or on all three sides, because there's also some distributional problems on the Canadian side. Um, I mean, in the in the environmental realm, and and how would you how would you shift the model for trade agreements? You know, what what could you learn to do a little better or a lot better distributionally? So that's so that's one you know sort of really highly relevant and important conversation. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, we have. Um, Sort of okay. So I we have someone lighting dumpster fires along the border, basically. And as much as I profoundly believe that the conversation I just referenced is the one we need to be having, um, you know, I would like not to see things get a lot worse either for Americans or Mexicans because, um, as you note, through a whole bunch of mechanisms, anything that is upsetting on one side and harmful is ultimately going to be upsetting and harmful on the other. Which I think. Back to our point about institutions, in some ways, that's the fundamental point that Trump world rejects. Um, you know, the idea that um, you can that you can deglobalize. You know, that you could do something that would be good for the U.S. economy, and that it just wouldn't matter what it what it did to the Mexican economy. Right. And I think the the twenty percent tariff is a is a great example of that. You know, that this this fantasy. That you could put on a twenty percent tariff, and that wouldn't have any effect on anybody, right? Or the, I mean, the wall, for that matter, isn't is the is the immigration parallel to this, which is, I mean, clearly the Trump administration has made a bet that they can act unilaterally in a way that will please their base and or benefit the U.S. economy, and that that would outweigh any gains they could potentially get from multilateral cooperation. And I think that doesn't apply just to NAFTA. I think it applies more generally, frankly. Um, that there are a few partners they're going to be looking for. I mean, Theresa May, I believe, is in uh, Washington as we speak. Um, there, the, there's going to be a weekend call with Vladimir Putin. There are clearly some leaders, uh, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, where Trump is perfectly happy to be friendly with. There aren't a lot of them, though. Um, to, to your larger point, I mean, I obviously agree with you on the second thing. I would argue that the first one is, is I would offer two pushbacks to this. The first is is that even if you acknowledge Roderick's point about distribution, and I think that's a totally fair um, empirical point to make, the question becomes whether or not the solutions to that are truly international or whether they're domestic. Um, and I think you can make the case that that's an instance where, in fact, dealing with the dislocations from uh, increased trade is by and large a domestic problem not an international problem. And this points to one of the, and this points to a deeper issue that I I think explains why there is so much, um, why there is so, why there is an eroding trust 
in both domestic and international institutions, which is you and I are aware that if you negotiate a treaty or let's say you pass a thing like, I don't know, comprehensive health care reform, you're not going to get it right on the first try. There are always going to be, you know, any solution to a problem is going to create more problems. That's just the nature of policymaking. That's the nature of the beast. The way it used to work on this is that when you did that, you would create new problems, and then usually after three, four, five years, Congress and the president would get together and figure out, okay, we now have these new problems. What are we going to do to fix this? Um, because that is a problem. Now, would it always be solved? No. Would it always be solved perfectly? God, no. But there was a recognition usually on both sides of the aisle that a problem required some kind of solution. And while there would be obviously partisan fights about this and so on and so forth, you know, think like the doc fix in Medicare, for example. Um, that's always the, the sort of clock example where there was a flaw in the initial legislation and there's a recognition, okay, we're just going to have to deal with this going forward. You can argue that rising levels of partisanship in Congress have essentially made that kind of, you know, every couple of years maintenance of both the domestic and liberal and international orders much more difficult, which means that essentially, in some ways, it's like having a factory where you don't constantly engage in reinvestment. And as a result, capital begins to depreciate rather seriously over time. Machines break down. Things stop working. And so I do think that, you know, the, the criticism that is often levied against institutions like NAFTA or other, you know, uh, international institutions is often, you know, there's, a, there's at least a, a small to a large grain of truth to them. The problem is, is that I think the reason they have not worked terribly well also has something to do with the fact that it has become that much more difficult to fix them or to make minor modifications over time. And therefore, as a result, we're now in the situation that we are. You know, I um, that's a great theoretical position. I am completely at a loss to name one instance where um, somebody wanted to address a distributional problem coming out of NAFTA or CAFTA, um, just to name two, and what blocked them from doing it was partisanship in Congress, as opposed to, well, trade, I think... Trade promotion think, authority would have fallen under that category. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Democrats were constantly okay with passing trade promotion authority, let's say under the Bush years, for example, but they wanted expanded amounts of trade adjustment assistance, which the Republicans were never willing to offer. I, I gotta say, I would point the finger a little more severely at, um, at us, you know, at the, the security slash trade elite on these issues and say, you know, yes, things got more partisan and more difficult. And we didn't think that fixing the flaws was very high up on our list of priorities. All right. For the record, I thought these were big flaws, but I grant you that I might have been, uh, I might have been a sole voice in the wilderness. But, right. but, I, but my point stands, which is this is an example of something where people recognized there was a problem. It wasn't that big of a problem. Maybe you're right about that. It was allowed to fester, which on its own probably wasn't that big of a deal. But you, if you accumulate enough of these kinds of things, there becomes a bigger issue. Yeah, and I mean, it was a very big deal for the people for whom it was a problem. Right. And, you know, um, political science tells you that has the risk of eventually coming back to bite you. And, um, you know, trade as a perceived problem 
although you and I both agree that trade is not nearly as much of an actual problem as it is a perceived problem, but trade is a perceived problem and a problem that it was perceived nobody cared enough to spend any political capital to do anything about. Fair. You know, so here we are. But I got to say, with everything else that's going on, I do not have the heart to argue with you much more about that. But <laughs> what I feel like there's probably at least one. Oh, um, we should at least mention that there was a draft, there's a rumored executive order lifting sanctions on Russia. Oh, Christ, yes. Okay. And that, and that, I mean, it's hard to over or underreact to something that you don't know what the actual content is. Yes. But um, the idea that the president of the United States, who said he was going to come in office and make better deals, and that his predecessors were the worst deal makers, and his opponent were the worst deal makers ever, and that he would come into office and lift sanctions without getting anything for them? I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to the Harvard program on negotiation. I'm not like a trained professional, but you don't usually give away your biggest card for nothing up front. It's right? not just, well, I, more than that, what I don't understand is, it's not just that I'm not, it's not obvious to me what you would get from Russia out of this deal. What would be very clear to me is that what you would get out of this deal is just a tremendous, you know, uh, disruption in relations with the European Union. Um, if you do this, I'm not even sure I agree with that, to be honest, because really? you have you have enough countries in the EU that were um, being dragged against the oh, will of their Russia dependent business elites. And you have I mean, you have the French right. elections, the German elections, the Dutch elections, all of which Russian money is a huge problem. So I wish it were the case. I mean, yes, the polls and the Balts are going to be hysterical, but... But it's not just that. It's the unilateral move by the Trump administration to lift the sanctions. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. Sanction, that, that, in some ways, that's the very problem. Sanctions were a far more contentious issue within the European Union than they were in the United States, justifiably so, because Europe trades 10 times as much with Russia as the United States does. If the Trump administration lifts the sanctions unilaterally without any consultation whatsoever with the European Union, and if it does so particularly after presumably Theresa May is here telling Trump not to do that, because I think that's one of the few things that she said that, you know, clearly don't do that, then you manage to, you know, um, essentially give a black eye to the prime minister who has flown across the, the Atlantic to meet with you and presumably, you know, with an outstretched arm. You've managed to undercut the European Union, which to be fair, I guess the Trump people don't mind that uh, because one of the unspoken issues of the Trump administration is their unremitting hostility to the European Union um, as a foreign policy actor. Um, but yeah, to get back to your point, I don't see what the hell this gains us in terms of dealings with Russia. And it's not obvious to me what the, the uh, it's not obvious to me at all what gain you get in this deal from warmer relations with Russia, except maybe on Syria. And even there, I'm not sure it's really uh, anything that tangibly benefits the United States. Well, what you get is some gains for some particular corporate sectors. Um, you know, let's let's be clear about that. There are segments of the American economy, um, ExxonMobil being one of them, that were hurt significantly when the U.S. Im implemented sanctions and that will be very happy to see them go. So there are there are some clients for this decision. Yeah, but that, even there, the economic benefits are really meager with lifting the sanctions. I didn't say there were econo economic benefits okay. to the country as a whole. Okay. No, that's and, fair. fair. You know, um, um, so just one other to, to, to branch. So 
so again, that is a huge deal because it walks away from some core conventions of how you do business in the world. One being you don't do that kind of thing without consulting with your allies in the EU. And number two is you don't, you don't give away something for nothing yeah. to a country that is unrelentingly hostile to you in a number of sectors. So, so again, um, you know, how much were the sanctions constraining Russia? That's not hugely clear. Um, you know, how much are the sanctions constraining Russia as opposed to how much is the rotation of U.S. troops through through Eastern Europe constraining Russia? You know, interesting question. Um, but again, the, the moving away from sort of a structure of how we do business in the world that has actually served us really well. And I'll just add, this will be, um, you'll be watching this after Theresa May, the prime minister, the British prime minister has come and gone. But um she basically comes here with two black eyes, self-inflicted or Trump-inflicted black eyes. You know, she's already asked the administration not to lift the Russia sanctions unilaterally. She also, to her credit, um, came out and said very bluntly, the, the UK won't partner with the US if the US tortures. Right. Um, which was a very brave thing for a British prime minister um, whose voters have just cut her off from the European Union. Um, you know, the Brits really, a post-Brexit Britain really needs the relationship with the U.S. And to take as firm a stand as she did on torture was impressive. Um, it'll be important to watch, I think, what what gets said by both sides after the meeting and what um, gets leaked about what the tone and content of it was. So yes. if you're watching this and you haven't followed that, go back and check it out because it'll be it'll be interesting. Well, and I, I would close with this observation, which you, you probably share, which is to say that as a political scientist, one of the great things about this new administration is the whole bevy of natural experiments we are about to experience as to whether if you have an administration that radically changes the way it does things, do these changes actually matter, uh, both in terms of the health of the U.S. economy, the stability of the international system, so on and so forth. And one of the things that I am quite sure, based on just the first week of reporting alone, is that there will be leaks galore uh, from this White House and from this administration, because it is very clear uh, that you have a White House staff that, if not is exactly at each other's throats, certainly there are many different contending sources of power. And one of the ways they are going to try to influence things that go on, because they know Trump reads these things, is to leak them to the press. Uh, and or leak them to CNN or Fox or MSNBC. Um, and then on top of that, you are going to have the permanent bureaucracy, which is also probably going to leak like a sieve uh, um, if they are being asked to do things that they think are contrary to the interests of the United States. Led by our intelligence establishment, which is exactly. leaking like a sieve. And we should, yeah. we should, as a small addendum to that, a smaller natural experiment that we are conducting is how a concerned citizen can keep track of all of this crazy and um, we enjoy playing our small part in helping helping focus folks' attention on what's going on and what really matters. So, um, hey, um, as we enter our, I think this is like we're into our second decade of blogging heads. So, uh, um, we look forward to conducting this experiment with you, fellow citizens. Yes, along with all the other foreign policy podcasts, even though ours is best. Right. Okay. See you next <laughs> so, time. See you next time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 
You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.